Hey, it's Francis. The Lunar New Year is right around the corner, and for one in every four people on this planet, that means festivity, family, and feasting. Check out this episode we did last year to celebrate the day. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. When you hear the words New Year's celebration, what do you think of? My first thought actually always goes back to Anthony Bourdain because there's a scene in his book Kitchen Confidential where as a chef, he's, you know, cooking a New Year's Eve menu where they're pulling out all the stops and it's champagne and caviar. And of course, the night he's writing about turns into a total catastrophe. But that's the image I imagine, right? A night of excess, indulgence, and New Year's Day is really just for nursing a hangover. Which is all to say that the idea that pops into my head is kind of the exact opposite of what New Year's actually meant to me and my family when I was growing up. And by that, I mean the Lunar New Year, which we called Chinese New Year when I was a kid. And that celebration was always the opposite of reckless partying. It was always about family, community, and symbolism. We had rituals and traditions, like we got dressed up in outfits, and there was always red clothing, like a new nice piece of red clothing. And when we were kids, we would get money from our relatives for good luck. And uh, for me, that was basically my allowance for the year. So I was very sure to find every single auntie to make sure I said hello and Happy New Year to them. And of course, you really can't have a Chinese or Asian celebration of any kind without a whole menu of symbolic foods. And I'm bringing all this up because the Lunar New Year is upon us, and because, of course, it's celebrated by a quarter of the world's people. We're going to hear about the Korean Lunar New Year celebrations in Chef Huni Kim's home, about the Vietnamese celebrations of our dear friend Andrea Nguyen, and first, about the Chinese traditions that went on in Sarah and Caitlin Lung's house. Sarah and Caitlin, along with their parents, Judy and Bill, are the family behind The Walks of Life. It's a blog that started 10 years ago when the daughters found themselves writing to their parents saying, hey, like, how did you make this again? Or, man, I miss eating that. How how did you make that? And now that blog has grown to have probably the most devoted following of any Chinese cooking blog in America. I finally got to meet them at a launch event for the cookbook published by the company I work for. And I'm not going to lie. I got a little jealous when I saw how much fun they have cooking with each other. So I really wanted to know what it's like for them on the day when food means everything. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Francis. Hey, Francis. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for coming. And, you know, it's time to celebrate. And famously, the Chinese New Year table is full of foods that have symbolic meaning, right? Like, Every dish either looks like or, you know, the name of which sounds like some kind of blessing you want in the new year. And famously, dumplings look like old silver ingots, so they symbolize money, all that kind of stuff. What does your new year menu look like? So I'll start. This is Sarah. Um, Yes, every item on the Chinese New Year table, particularly for Chinese New Year Eve dinner, so Nian Ye Fan, which is the the evening before New Year's Day, Mm -hmm. um, has to have, every dish has to have some kind of symbolic meaning. Um, At our Chinese New Year dinner, I think that um, a few things show up every year. Um, So we always have spring rolls, um, which mm. are kind of in the same vein as the dumplings. They they resemble like gold bars. Um, oh, gold and then is also like, silver. Yeah, gold is a lot better <laughs> than <laughs> silver. Um, and then there's always a, a whole poached chicken, which represents like wholeness or family unity. Mm. Um, we always have two fish. So you eat one fish at the dinner and then you leave one for the next day as leftovers. And that kind of rep- represents surplus for the mm, new year. Okay. Um, and then, you know, sometimes we'll see things like stir-fried lettuce, for example, which sounds like kind of like, eh, it doesn't sound all that exciting. But in Chinese, lettuce is called sheng cai, which kind of is like a homonym for like to make money, basically. <laughs> so a lot of the, the symbolism in these dishes has to do with, you know, not just the visual appearance of the food, but in a lot of cases, like 
the name of the dish that's like a homonym for something having mm-hmm. to do with prosperity or wealth or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And one quick note on the Cantonese poached chicken is, you know, just all like kind of building on the symbolic aspect of everything. Like it's a truly a whole chicken. That's a head on with feet chicken because sort of if you cut away any part of it, you're kind of cutting into that unity and togetherness and that sense of wholeness. So, um, yeah, just there's strong commitment to <laughs> those <laughs> symbolic meanings. <laughs> I mean, this is really special because you've described a full menu. And like when I think about the the Chinese New Year celebrations, my family had like, I don't really remember all of those individual dishes. Like I, re- I remember more this like theory, this concept of, oh, the, the dishes are supposed to sound like this or they're supposed to look like that. And let's face it, as you've mentioned, most of the time they have to do with money. Like <laughs> we want dumplings for more silver. We want spring rolls for more gold. We want lettuce for more cash. It's like, okay, what's, what's like the crypto dish? Uh, I guess we don't have those anymore. Um, but like for me, the one I really remember and I've always loved is um, shrimp. And I don't know if this is, uh, universal in, in um, you know, all the different regions of China, but at least in um, Guangzhou, where we speak Cantonese, where my family's from, the word for shrimp is ha. And so mm-hmm. if you have ha, 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 ha on a dish, that means mm-hmm. you'll laugh all through the year. And that, that mm-hmm. I always find that really lovely. But does your table change year to year, Caitlin? Um, honestly, I feel like these days we... We really, as a family, I think, enjoy the the different traditional aspects of it. So there are some mm. there are some dishes that are just so comforting that we always want to have those around. So like the whole poached chicken with ginger and scallion oil is just like that's mm. just like a non negotiable. Like we have <laughs> to have that. Um, same goes for for fish. It's usually a, a Cantonese steamed fish. Um, and then I feel like the rest of it, honestly, kind of can. Okay, so maybe I go back a little bit on what I said. The rest is a little bit open for interpretation because I feel like Mm. as me and Sarah have deepened our knowledge on Chinese cooking, these days we have much more of like an opinion (laughs) and a say on what we want to cook and what we want to eat for the the big celebration. So um, it's kind of like honestly a little bit like Thanksgiving in the way that you kind of like think about and plan the menu and – you, you know, each family member has the things that are their favorite. So you try to work all of those in. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I need to pause because I'm losing my train of thought, but <laughs> <laughs> this is where the editor would cut. Yeah. But yeah, uh, no, I, Sarah, yeah, maybe I, you could I can in. keep going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think that what's great about having worked on the blog for the last 10 years is that Um, I think my sister and I have become a lot more invested in the Chinese New Year meal Um, because, you know, Mm. when we were kids, it was kind of we felt like we were maybe a little bit detached from it. Like it was a meal that our parents prepared. And, um, you know, my sister and I didn't necessarily have like the knowledge or the know how to like contribute as much. You know, we made dumplings with our grandmother and and like we were part of it that way. But we definitely Mm -hmm. didn't have the knowledge of like what should be on the table and what do these dishes actually mean symbolically? And now that we've, um, we've been working on the blog for, you know, almost 10 years now, and we've even developed some of these recipes ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So at this point, I feel like it's almost like, like we were just like a lot more invested in the menu. So like my sister brought up Thanksgiving, right? Like Thanksgiving used to be like our only domain to like (laughs) contribute to put dishes on a holiday table, so to speak, right? Because like at Chinese holidays, like my sister and I were basically useless uh, growing <laughs> up. So so I think like now I feel really proud that, you know, if we have to make a Cantonese poached chicken, like it's not just my parents like making that anymore. Like I could make the poached chicken um, or like I could make the, my mom's spring rolls, you know? And also like what's been great about the blog is that it's pushed us to look for dishes from other regions that aren't Mm. necessarily like our family's background to see like, okay, what are other um, families in other parts of China cooking for the new year? Because Chinese New Year dishes, while they all sort of have that like commonality of being uh, symbolic, they can vary quite a bit uh, from region to region. Um, So it's been fun to kind of explore different dishes and and learn more about them. Um, 
over the years. Because every year, right, every Chinese New Year, we have to come up with like a new handful of Chinese New Year recipes. And after 10 years, you're like, okay, we kind of gone through all the like the ones we make. <laughs> so now it's time to to look at, you know, what other families are doing um, and experiment with those recipes. Great. What are some of those regional dishes that you didn't you didn't know, you know, from your own experience that you learned through looking into it through research? So one of them, it's this dish like we didn't really grow up eating this, um, but it is a very famous dish. Lion's head meatballs. Mm. Um, and it is actually from, it is f- sort of from like the region where my mom grew up, but like for whatever reason in our family, we, we didn't really ever make them. Um, but it is a, a large braised meatball. Um, and I guess like it, the name comes from like, I guess like the resemblance to li- a lion's head. Um, but that, you know, my mom did a lot of research on that recipe and it was fun to develop that one. She also did this recipe for another one that we just like never had growing up, which is a stuffed um, gluten. <laughs> I know like now today gluten is like the enemy, but in China, <laughs> right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. you'll see like essentially like seitan or gluten mm-hmm, in various mm-hmm. forms like a tofu. Yeah. Um, and there are these fried gluten balls for lack of a better term but they're like fried like puffs almost yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. um they're, they're very, very chewy like and... yeah they're when they're cooked they're chewy but they're when they're um they're fried they're like kind of light as air and you can stuff them so my mom stuffs them with like this meat filling and then braises them and that was Ooh. like a totally i did not know that that was a thing um that was like a totally new thing uh for me to see um, my mom also made these little dumplings that looked like money bags, um, which I don't know if that's like a traditional regional thing, but it's definitely like a just like an interesting idea that she got from basically like surfing the Chinese internet for ideas. Um, so the, like it's just really kind of fun to just like look back at what's going on in China um, around the holiday, like what people are making um, and to share that with an American audience. Yeah. I love that. I love the idea that like, oh, generations from now, you'll be like, you know, you'll be telling <laughs> your descendants, like when they're like, what was the meaning of this dish? Why do we celebrate with this? Like, well, your great grandmother was surfing the internet one day. And... <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with more with Caitlin and Sarah Lung, authors of The Walks of Life. And then we're on to Tet, the Vietnamese New Year with Andrea Wynn. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits, the rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're celebrating the Lunar New Year today with Chef Huni Kim, author Andrea Wynn, and right now, continuing our conversation with Sarah and Caitlin Lung, authors of The Walks of Life. Let's get back to it with them. So Sarah, before the break, you mentioned the stuffed gluten. And, you know, I mean, that is not the most appealing word, especially like because of how we associate gluten now with like Mainly you hear it because of people have gluten intolerance, but that is like a traditional food where it was a great way of getting protein, like a, mm-hmm. a plant-based protein if you didn't have meat available. Yeah. And 
you would take flour and you basically make a dough and you keep washing the dough until all the flour starch comes out and you just have this gluten, which is this beautiful, stretchy, sort of proteiny meat replacement. But I love yeah, the idea of totally. frying it and puffing it up. And that sounds awesome. Yep. I mean, there's a really um, rich tradition. I, and obviously, like Hannah Che, vegan Chinese kitchen, like she gets into this um, mm-hmm. extensively. But like there is a really rich tradition of uh, Buddhist style vegetarian or vegan cooking um, in China. And like with the gluten, the when you wash the flour and make this gluten, you're also getting another byproduct, which is the starch, the wheat starch uh, from the flour. And with that, you can make noodles or you can just isolate mm-hmm. the wheat starch and use it to make like dumpling wrappers and things like that. So um, it's just, you know, when you explore these recipes, you're just, there's so much to learn about the culture behind it and, you know, where these dishes came from and where they originated. Yeah, totally. Caitlin, you'd mentioned um, that when you were younger, and yeah, I had a similar experience too, you would just kind of show up, right? And everything was on the table and you weren't really that, you know, whatever, we we're kids. So you weren't like really trying to learn, oh, why are we eating this tonight? And mm-hmm. why is this a thing that we're seeing here? And um, But you said as you've gotten older, you've gotten not just learned more about it, as you've talked about working on the blog, so it's, you know, it's your work, but you also felt like you're more invested in these traditions. Talk about that. Why do you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, when I think about, you know, it's funny, like reflecting on Chinese New Year now as like adults, um, I think about the way that it used to be when we were kids. And yeah, we were very much uh, passive participants. You know, it was very much like, oh, off to grandma's house and flushing we go. And (laughs) we would sort of show up and there'd be all these dishes like laid out on the table and my grandmother would prepare all the, you know, all the symbolic things. And a lot of that, you know, you would kind of just pick up by osmosis. Like you weren't really like actively knowing exactly what should be on the table or you were just kind of reacting to it. Um, so I actually have like a funny memory of like sitting down to the table and like, you know, suspiciously surveying all of the things uh, <laughs> as a little kid. And you know, my mom would say like, oh, you know, all of these dishes have symbolic meanings. And, you know, if you eat them, then it'll help you have a better new year. And I would like go around and be like, oh, what does that mean? And what does that mean? And she'd say, you know, whatever. And I'd be like, oh, well, I don't really like that food. So maybe I'll just do without that this year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need silver. Just yeah, the exactly. Gold. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, a lot of that stuff, even though, you know, I, I joke about it, but I think over the years, like, as I got older, I realized how much of that stuff I I did really internalize and, and pick up mm. on. And when I went to college, for example, like, I really missed that, you know, like, I really wanted to to celebrate Chinese New Year when, when the, that time of year rolled around. And even though when I was like a little kid, sometimes I really like, wasn't all that clued into like exactly what was going on it was like all about like the raining down of the red envelopes with money inside yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know I really just had a, this appreciation that I didn't even realize even that I had for mm-hmm. these traditions and and these dishes too yeah I, I think I think you're you you both kind of spoke on this like oh when you were younger or when we were younger like it was sort of passive, right? It was like, okay, the day's here and like, okay, I'm, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to make sure I say hi to that auntie and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and whatever. And Put on really, your red just, sweater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm just focused on like, oh, like how much pocket money I'm going to get from the, the red envelopes that like, you know, all the grown-ups hand me. <laughs> and not <laughs> really exactly. thinking about the actual traditions. But now, um, I don't know, maybe it's nostalgia, but maybe it's also like, oh, at some point you start to think about like, oh, this is who am I, right? This is kind of who I am. Totally. And I, and I feel like something that me and Sarah have been like, funnily thinking about more and more as we get older is like more of the superstitions around Chinese New Year. And, you know, the yes, like you wear red on the day and in the week leading up to it, like you're supposed to clean the house before Chinese New Year so you don't like accidentally sweep away your luck and you get mm-hmm. a haircut, you buy a new outfit and all these things that like when you're a kid, you're kind of like, eh, is that really like, 
is there really anything to that? But, you know, the uncertainty of adulthood kind of like takes hold. <laughs> and then suddenly you're like, ah, maybe I should go get a haircut. Like, <laughs> every, I could every use year. all the luck I can get. Yeah, yeah every, exactly. Like every year I'm like, am I going to really do a deep clean of my apartment? I don't know. I don't know. And like I hem and I haw. And then like three days before I'm like, I, I have to do it. And then I like do like a top to bottom clean of the apartment and like, and then I feel like my luck has been secure. <laughs> it's like, just... <laughs> well, this was a blast. Thank you guys so much for coming through. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, Happy yeah, New Year, Francis. Happy New Year. Gung-hei fat choy. Gung-hei fat choy. Still said with the slight sheepishness of a of kids i feel like yeah. when you you, yeah. you make the rounds and it's like going hey patoy that it's like can i have my money now yeah. <laughs> sarah and caitlin lung are the co-authors along with their parents bill and judy of the blog and cookbook the walks of life you can find their recipe for poached white cut chicken at splendidtable.org Okay, so if you start in the very middle of China and head due south, you come to Vietnam, home to one of the world's absolutely greatest cuisines. It's really one of my favorites. It's so full of fresh flavors and incredible savoriness. And yet, it also has a surprisingly simple, comforting Lunar New Year culinary tradition, according to our friend, Andrea Wynn. Andrea is an award-winning cookbook author and one of the OG food bloggers at Viet World Kitchen. She's here now. Hey, Andrea, it's great to see you. Hey, Francis. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, this is going to be a pleasure. And hey, actually, let me start with this. The name of the Vietnamese New Year celebration, Tet. Yes. Can you tell me what that means? You know, that. Like, it means so many things to Vietnamese people. And mm. when we celebrate Tet, we say Ang Tet, which is Ang means to eat. So we literally eat the new year up. Like, mm. we just absorb it. And food, you know, plays a huge role. So we absorb it through our souls, our minds, you know, through taking a look at the longevity of our family histories. And then we also celebrate Tet um, at the table and in the kitchen. And the first day of Tet is called Tet. Win Dan, and it is like the most important day of the year. Hmm. And is there a meaning of the name? Is there a, trans, a translation or transliteration? No, I, not that I know of. Okay. Um, we've never talked about like, you know, there's so much influence from Chinese culture in Vietnam. And I've like tried to trace, you know, just trying to figure out like, is there a meaning to the word dead? And I, I've yet to come across it. And if you do, let me know. <laughs> I definitely have not. <laughs> I mean, you know, we travel in sort of similar circles, yeah. but not. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm asking because it's, you know, when I was growing up, it was always just translated as like, oh, Chinese New Year. And well, I think more properly now we say Lunar New Year because it's not just the Chinese who celebrate it, right? Like multiple Asian, Southeast Asian cultures celebrate the Lunar New Year. So we call it the Lunar New Year now. Um, but I've never known like a name for the holiday, the festival, the celebration uh, in Cantonese, which is what I speak. Like, we've always just called it Sunbeam, which literally just means New Year. Um, so I was intrigued to know that there was a specific name for the the, the holiday in Vietnamese that didn't, wasn't just New Year. Yeah, no, I mean, we, you know, before my family came to America, we just knew it as that. And then mm -hmm. we come here and everyone's like, Chinese New Year. And I was like, I'm not Chinese. <laughs> and, and so... <laughs> yeah. I would always try to correct people, Lunar New Year. And it's only been in the last couple of years, right, that people have, like, switched from Chinese New Year to Lunar New Year. Interesting. That people are really seeing this as a celebration um, that's rooted in the lunar calendar versus the solar calendar. And that it's celebrated by people who are of um, East Asian descent. Yeah, totally. And obviously, you know, China and Vietnam are neighbors and there are commonalities across the cultures um like you and i were talking about this yesterday how the tradition which you know for me was the most important part when i was a kid of getting lucky money in red envelopes is something that you know is you know, common both in vietnam and and china you wear new clothes um you clean the house all that stuff but the food traditions are quite different right right they are and when i've taken a look at 
Cantonese menus, they were always like full of, you know, these really charming and playful homonyms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. you know, things that are supposed to bring you luck or, or the gold bars that are shaped like, like fried egg rolls or spring rolls. Mm-hmm. In Vietnamese tradition, we like focus on very simple things, rice, meat, beans, and vegetables. And I know mm. that sounds so boring, but when they're assembled I'm never bored in, by those things. But. Oh, me, okay, thank you. That's why you and I are friends. <laughs> but, and so, um, like, there is this Vietnamese that sticky rice cake that is called bánh chưng when it's wrapped um, by northern Vietnamese folks. And there, it, it is a square-shaped um, tamale, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. that looks like a cake. And it's about, you know, one or two inches high. And it could be as small as three inches or as big as 10 inches. And it's filled oh, wow. with sticky rice. And uh, that's been wrapped up in um, banana leaf. Or in Vietnam, you would use a particular leaf that either way, the leaf would stain the exterior of the cake a pale jade green, mm. which I think symbolizes sort of like the the renewal aspect of the year because it's considered, you know, like a springtime renewal mm, okay. um, thing, even though that we're still in winter. But anyway, inside there are mung beans that are kind of buttery and then fatty pork and um, lean pork. It's all seasoned by like pepper and fish sauce. And that's Sounds it. great. It's really good. It comes together and um, it's either wrapped as a square or it's wrapped like a, as a cylinder called bentet, not bentet. But it's been that spelled T E T, but people are always like confused. <laughs> anyway, like you make, you start prepping for it like a few days before the actual first day of the year. And, um, and the first day of the year, you open up these cakes and they're warm, they're soft, and they're fragrant. And they just say to me, Vietnam, because it's a very humble kind of tradition and it's absolutely delicious. Mm. That's interesting, actually, because I think of, um, you know, my, my impression of Vietnamese food is that it is, there's a, there's a huge emphasis on contrast and freshness, right? A lot of fresh herbs, crunchy raw vegetables to go with your um, noodles or to go with um, something stewed or something grilled. Um, so it's interesting that like the celebratory food is a cake that's steamed. So it's it's kind of all melded together rather than sort of contrasting. Is there, do you know if there's... Like, how, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. So, so this this package of um, sticky rice and beans and pork, you know, it's it's boiled for like hours in a giant oh, wow, pot, okay. and it's a communal thing. Like, you literally you have to boil it for you know, if you've got like medium sized one, it's about five inches square. It boils for five to six hours. Oh wow! And yeah, yeah. So it's like this long, long-term investment of time <laughs> and a lot of communal cooking. But the crunchy contrast um, uh, comes in the forms of like pickled vegetables and preserved vegetables. This time of the year, you know, if you are in like um, northern Vietnam, you really don't get a lot of the fresh herbs. There are okay. some, but it's not that kind of plethora of of you know, hedgerow greenery that people expect from Vietnamese food. Mm. And and so the crunch and the contrast are there, but it's not the usual suspects that people would associate with Vietnamese food. Okay, that's interesting. And do you have like a a family recipe for your bun chung? Like, is it like, it's got to taste like mom's or doesn't count? You know, um, mom's tastes like... <laughs> something she brought over from ni- in 1975. Mm. And her recipe goes back to a friend of the family's who actually wrote an article in Saigon about how to make banjing. And when he came to mm. America, he was like, I'm going to bring some of my most valuable things. I'm going to bring like a photocopy or a mimeograph or whatever it was of that particular article. Mm, okay. And he sent it to her. And that's how she was able to replicate the intricacies of of wrapping the the cake because it's not really made of like many ingredients, but in order to take those ingredients and assemble it into basically like a gift box of food that's wrapped mm, okay. in banana leaf is pretty difficult. And and so she does that and she taught me how to do it. How do you do that? How do you make like you know soft food appear in like exactly. right angles? Right, right. So um, there is a mold, a wooden mold okay. in a square-shaped frame. And then 
I line it with leaves, banana leaves and bamboo leaves in a particular pattern. And then I put my ingredients in and I fold the leaves down, but then there's a certain point where I have to remove it from the mold. And that's the tricky part. And I literally will somehow slide that mold onto my forearm and then do like a little Cirque du Soleil trick to, <laughs> to remove the mold and then wrap it all up. But aluminum foil helps a lot. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the, the ingenuity of humankind is using tools. So there you go. Exactly. And we didn't have aluminum foil in Vietnam in the 1970s. And um, so people would just kind of freestyle it with a particular kind of leaf. They wouldn't use banana leaf. And, um, but, but everyone would just say, well, how beautiful can your bánh chung be? But in America, you can make it beautiful with like the wooden mold as help as well as the foil. Who's in charge of making it? In your family? Um, Typically, well, I split duties with my mom, but Mm -hmm. um, she, you know, it depends on her mood. And um, last year, right before Tet, um, my father had passed away. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't want my mom to be lonely on um, Tet. So I drove down to Southern California from my home, which is about an eight-hour drive. And I said, mom, I said, ma, you know, let's make and she was like, I don't know. I'm kind of out of practice. I don't know. I don't feel so good. And then all of a sudden she calls me a week before and she says, I told your sister to get me all the ingredients and the leaves. And I was like, all right. She still got her game on. And so I go down there and she's just like, you know, we're going to make it. And two days before she goes into high gear to like soak the rice, to cook her mung beans, to prep the leaves. And then the day before she and I wrap them together and she doesn't just wrap like two or three. She made about 20 (laughs) and she had three pots going and she like (laughs) climbed. She's 88. She she climbs up into her garage and like pulls down these gigantic stock pots that she and my dad used to use to make banjung. And I'm just like, you're going to fall, woman. She's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and I'm like trying to help her and all that. It was, you know, and, and it was a great, wonderful distraction and, mm. and a wonderful way for um, us to celebrate the new year, something new without my father. And I think that's the other aspect of Tet is that it's very family oriented and there's a lot mm. of nostalgia and there's a lot of this notion of um, gratitude. And um, that's what I always want to tell people about Tet is that it's, it's for us, for Vietnamese people, it's a very humble um, kind of time of the year. We'll be back with more with Andrea Wynn, author of Vietnamese Food Any Day. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking today about Lunar New Year menus from China, Korea, and now Vietnam with cookbook author Andrea Wynn. Let's get back to it with her. Um, so we've talked a lot about the banjong as, as sort of the centerpiece of of the meal and how eating is is such an important part of celebrating Tet, as you said. Do you feel like you also, you know, do you evolve the menu? Do you feel like you don't dare evolve the menu? Do you 
add things along with the bunchung? Like, what do you... Right. I mean, isn't there always that fear, Francis, is like when you stray from tradition that something or someone's going to strike you down? Sure. <laughs> like some lightning bolt. <laughs> right, right, right. And for me, as as a writer, people are always coming to me and asking, me, what do you traditionally do? And I'm just like, well, you know, these are the traditions of my family. And these are Vietnamese foodways, but but foodways evolve. And so um, it, it's one of the things that really kind of gets me about um, Bet and my family's celebration is that it's very, very meaty. Mm-hmm. And it's the time of the year when you're supposed to traditionally kill a pig and make, you know, different kinds of charcuterie and also simmer parts in caramel sauce. And um, so we always make these pork riblets in caramel sauce and fish sauce. Mm. It's like a bittersweet, savory kind of dish. But um, this year, I'm going to do a vegetarian take on a southern Vietnamese cob. Um, and so the Southerners will cook pork belly up with coconut water, caramel sauce, and eggs. Mm. And um, they serve that with their um, their Tet celebration. And because my family's like half Northern and half Southern, I'm like, I'm going to go all regions, okay? I'm just going to go all the way from the top to the bottom of, of the country. But the version <laughs> that I'm making is going to involve um, – frying tofu and then simmering it with coconut milk and fish sauce and having the eggs in there with the caramel sauce. And it's absolutely delicious. And the tofu gets like this richness that is very similar to the pork belly, except you don't have to eat pork yet again. Because yeah. um, I mean, I love pork, but it gets, you know, it gets to be very, very heavy duty. Yeah. Well, I love that you also feel the, you know, obviously you, you have the pull of tradition, you have the pull of um you know, rapping and doing this craft with your mother, but also that you feel the the freedom to say, hey, I'm going to switch things up for my own taste too. You know, making that switch as a cook is something that when I was younger, I wouldn't have done because I felt like I didn't have the right to. Mm. But um, as I've become, you know, a, a more well-practiced cook, a person who who feels, you know, more confident in the kitchen and in my culture and in terms of who I am, I take more liberties with it. I mean, and without straying too far from what makes Vietnamese food what Vietnamese food is. And the recipe that I talked to you with the pork and eggs in um, caramel sauce is something that I came up with for um, my upcoming book, evergreen Vietnamese. And that's all rooted in Vietnamese traditions of, of using a lot of, of ingredients from the earth with just a little bit from the sea and some meat. Mm-hmm. And I remember like sharing this idea with my mom. I was like, you know, that pork belly, you know, ka recipe. Well, I'm going to make it with tofu. And she, at first, because she's such a traditionalist, she was like, what are you doing? That so, sounds so wrong. And I was like, <laughs> lady, you know, <laughs> It's all right. And I served it to her and she was like, oh, this is like really good. <laughs> so even for someone of her, her generation, born in like the 1930s, you know, she's willing to be flexible. And, and it's just a matter of opening yourself up to new ideas, but in a way also um, tracing those back to really where your food traditions come from. And I think that that, that is, a, is a time when I'm always thinking about that going back and then moving forward. Mm, I love that. That's super, super lovely. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Always a pleasure talking with you, Francis. Andrea Wynn's latest book is called Vietnamese Food Any Day, and her next one, all about the great plant-based dishes of Vietnam, is Evergreen Vietnamese. And on our website, SplendidTable.org, you can find one of her classic recipes for pork ribs and caramel sauce. It is a really, really great time for Korean food lovers in New York City right now. There has just been this incredible bumper crop of exciting, creative Korean restaurants all over the city. One of New York's absolute greatest Korean chefs isn't really looking to innovate anything. <laughs> Hoon Kim keeps it old school. So old school, in fact, that he has been spending the last 12 years traveling back and forth to Korea learning how to make the traditional seasonings like soy sauce and fermented soybean paste. They're the backbone of Korean cuisine. 
And so we figured anyone that interested in tradition would probably take the Lunar New Year pretty seriously. Hey, Chef, it's great to see you. Hi, Francis. Nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk with you about this because I actually don't know much about what a traditional Korean Lunar New Year celebration is like. And and when we talked earlier, you said you do actually celebrate it in a very traditional way. Yes. Do you remember how you first started learning about these traditions? Um, I was born in Korea uh, and mm-hmm. I was there until I was four. I lived in England and then you know, here to the U.S. Um, I My first memory of celebrating these these Lunar New Year customs is when I was about five or six. It's the first time that I sort of realized I didn't have a father because <laughs> my father mm. passed away when I was two. And um, New Year's, a lot of my relatives, we would get together at my house and sort of have this, for me, it was festive. You know, the ladies, the women cooked all all day in the kitchen from scratch. And at night, um, we had this huge table with enormous amount of food, fruits, um, candies even. And Mm. we would all uh, sort of take turns bowing. Um, And then afterwards, we would just eat, pig out all night. (laughs) And everybody would go home with with food uh, that was left over. And I found out later, the reason why we were there was to sort of remember uh, my father who passed away. Uh, And Mm. This this act or this uh, ceremony is called Chesa. Uh, and we do it one, uh, twice a year, once mm. Lunar New Year and once the, the day that he actually did pass away, which mm. is uh, early December. And, you know, I never really grew up in Korea, but the more I visited Korea, I realized it's not just me, it's a lot of people, uh, Christians, mm. Buddhists, and all religions. Uh, it's more of a tradition, uh, cultural rather than sort of religion, uh, Buddhist-based. Oh, but it, but it's but the, some of the particulars of how you celebrate are rooted in a religious. Yes, yes. Um, and when I was living in England or in New York, my mother was too busy to cook, and we didn't have relatives in in the country, so we would actually celebrate or do the jesa at a Buddhist temple. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, we are Christian. Uh, We go to church every Sunday. Um, But twice a year, we went to the Buddhist temple to remember my father. What I remember, you know, when I got to be a certain age, I started to question the the, the monks who would perform this jesa with me. Um, Like, why are we doing this? I'm Christian. You know, what's this Mm -hmm. for? And I think I was 12. And that explanation that I heard when I was 12 is the reason why I keep doing it and the reason why I will do it for the rest of my life. Um, The monks explained that when uh, we die and we become spirits, we're just like we're, you know, we're alive. We're very social. So all the spirits are hanging Mm. out together. There's a group of friends and they like to have parties and their parties are thrown by by us who are still living. So these chesas are for them a bragging right. You know, it is their <laughs> party night because they go around to all of their friends' um, chesas and they eat and they, they have a good time because everybody's remembering them, bowing to them, pouring them liquor uh, uh, at chesa. And, you know, if you don't have chesa for your ancestors, then they are embarrassed, <laughs> you know, mm. because people, you know, they it sort of shows that you hadn't lived a good life where people on earth don't are remember trying to you. remember you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. So, you know, I had never known my father, um, but he gifted me my life and, and I'm a very happy person. So yeah. to show that appreciation, I would always uh, try or I have done a chesa for 48 years now, 47 years. Yeah. Wow. And so what's on the menu for this feast? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's gotten now where uh, every family or every region has like sort of different rules. Um, what I do is um, I veer a little bit away from the Buddhist uh, diet. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was doing this at the temple with the monks, they would never use any spices. They wouldn't use garlic, onion, the aromatics, uh, mm-hmm. because they said that these strong, pungent aromas would scare the spirits away. Um well, you know, I learned 
from my relatives that my father loved spices and loved meat and loved fish. Mm. <laughs> so I just thought, why not cook food that he would like? You know, even mm, if it okay. would scare some of the spirits away, which, you know, I don't believe too much. But um, I, I truly a chef. <laughs> and, and I told my son the other day, and he's only 13 and he's like at that point where he's questioning why we do this. I told him, look, you don't have to cook, but go to a steakhouse, leave an empty table for me and order me a nice porterhouse, medium rare. And that would be because <laughs> that's how I would like to be remembered. Um, Traditionally, we always have uh, chuns, which are sort of savory pancakes, mm, little yeah. fillets of fish, um, zucchini, tofu. Uh, and then we definitely have namus, which are vegetables. Like if you know bibimbap, it's the vegetables inside. So spinach, watercress, uh, what else? Which now you mentioned, they're not very heavily seasoned, right? It's the, yeah, they're not very heavily seasoned, but they always have garlic. Yeah, uh, all the Korean namos have garlic and bean sprouts, uh, mung bean sprouts, mm -hmm. and I sort of make it delicious because we have to eat it afterwards. So <laughs> I season it to the point where you know it's it's yummy, and uh, mm -hmm. those are the traditional ones. Um, are they like blanched? Yes, they're okay. blanched and then they're dressed with mm. the salt, soy sauce, garlic. Or sesame oil, sesame seeds, etc. Uh, sometimes you add gochugaru, which is the red pepper flakes, um, yeah. which which I do uh, because it tastes better. Um, so, and then um, a lot of seasonal fruits. Um, these days it would be persimmons, very colorful fruits as well, oranges, mm. um, and then candy. Candy, um, I actually can't get here, but traditionally in Korea they have. Uh, candies that are specifically made for jesa, very colorful uh, Buddhist colors. A lot of like prime, you know, green, uh, blues, reds. Um, it just makes the table look a lot more festive. Um, and then always a soup, always a clear soup, and a large bowl of rice and mm -hmm. alcohol. Um, sometimes I do soju, sometimes I do makgeolli. So soju mm. is like a, a clear spirit, right? Almost like a... Yes. But what's but makgeolli is like a cloudy fermented rice. Yeah, it, it's it's it's, it's brewed like, like a beer almost. Okay. And I guess you can sort of say it's almost like a nigori sake slash beer. Um, okay. Alcohol content's only 6%. It's on the sweeter side because it is a lot of sugars from the rice. And it's traditionally a farmer's drink. Farmers, mm. uh, middle of the day when it was too hot, they would drink makgeolli, take a little hour nap, and then they would go back to work. It's actually not filtered. <laughs> it's actually the scraps from the actually filtered part from the more expensive uh, Korean spirits and alcohol. Um, mm. So from... What the rich people would drink, the rice wine would be clear, and then the scraps left over would go to the farmers. These days, though, it's really hip uh, in Korea. All the young people are sort of into it, um, and, you know, I like it. So uh, I don't know if my dad liked it, but I'm sure, uh, I'm sure he would. <laughs> he'll, he'll, want, he'll want to knock one back with you. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so yeah. can we go a little bit into the, the juns you make? Because I, mm. I love these. You know, I've never been to a, a, a Korean New Year celebration, but I, I see them in Korean restaurants. Mm -hmm. the, like sometimes a seafood pancake yeah. um, or some of the kimchi pancake. Okay, so that is a chun as well, but that's more like a composed jun where it's large and round. Um, the jeza jun is a little bit different. You make a jun individually. So it's oh, okay. flour, egg batter, and then pan fry. And we do that with like little slices of like coins of zucchini. Um, we do it with little fillets of fish. So we fillet a fish and cut it down to like sort of bite size uh, knobs. And then okay. we season it, flour it, egg batter it and fry it. So it's a lot of work. <laughs> it, it, it really so like is a individual lot of work. Individual fritters. Like yes. Yeah. Fritters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Jesa food. Um, you know, and I've experienced this. I don't know if it's the best tasting Korean food, but it is mm. the most labor intensive. It is the most sort of um, the toughest to resource because um, traditionally, because you can't season it too much, 
the ingredient itself has to be fresh and has to be really good because that is what you're showcasing. Um, mm. So a lot of this takes in Korean word 정성, which is care and dedication and devotion, all of that. I guess putting it all together, I'm thinking if I was in Korea, and I know there's probably regional variation, mm. but like, what are some of the ingredients that I would be looking for right now that, that are standout ingredients in the winter? Cabbage, John, Napa cabbage, because this is kimchi making season. Kim mm, Jong-un. Okay. Uh, right now is when cabbage is the sweetest. Mm. Um, sweet potatoes. Um, and definitely fish. Like right now, it's at, a, at its fattiest. Um, yeah. And the namus, it would be dried. Spring, summer, great vegetables. Uh, Koreans dry it and then they hydrate it and make the namus in the winter. And that tradition still exists. So you would be going to the markets and knowing during the summer which stalls have the freshest and the nicest vegetables in the winter they would be selling the same vegetables that are now dried so that's what you would get and if for those who might not know what namul is um if you go to a like a korean barbecue restaurant or any korean restaurant uh they start you out with these little side dishes these banchans and most times they will have several namuls as one of the banchans because they are cheaper to make uh and you can sort of make a a whole bunch at the same time. And it stays, you know, fresh in your fridge for a couple of days. Um, And, you know, in Korea and here, um, it's for every Korean family. We always have namul uh, in the fridge. And it's also a staple for cheza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And I know you just opened a little banchan, like, deli. I can't can't wait to come visit you there and actually grab a bunch of these namuls and bring them home and have a big bowl of rice. Yeah, I make them every day, (laughs) every morning. Well, Chef, it has been great talking with you. Thanks so much. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. (laughs) Thank you. Hooney Kim's restaurants in New York City are Donji, The Little Banchan Shop, and Meiju. His cookbook is called My Korea, and you can find his recipe for simple jeon, those fritters he was talking about, at splendidtable.org. And that is our show today. To all of you who celebrate, Happy Lunar New Year. We'll talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Schaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lukey, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. 